You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Picture yourself in Southeast Asia. Imagine mangrove trees along riverbanks for miles standing at the bank of a tidal river in Malaysia. And you may see a swarm of insects that is, well... It's one of the most hypnotic spectacles in nature. But to see it, you'll have to wait for dusk. At first, say, when the sun goes down, there's still maybe a dim glow of of the setting sun. You'll see fireflies gathering in the trees, perching on the big leaves of the trees. And, And at first, you wouldn't particularly notice them. They're disorganized, they're flashing whenever they feel like it. But then as the sky darkens, fireflies begin to organize, first in little duos, flickering on and off simultaneously, and then threesomes. And pretty soon, after something like 45 minutes, a whole tree of thousands of fireflies will be igniting, all on and then completely dark, and then all on and completely dark. It's it's as if they were a Christmas tree, you know, with electric lights wired together to be synchronized, except that they're not. They're just independent fireflies on their own, and yet somehow they're managing to produce this symphony of light. And there's just so much light that fishermen in Thailand use the light of these fireflies, firefly trees they're known as, as beacons to guide them back to their home rivers. You know, it's really actually pretty amazing. Have you seen anything like that, Seth? No. I've seen a lot of fireflies. I'm from the East Coast, and uh, I've seen fireflies. I never saw them sync up, I have to say. Maybe they're just disorganized here in America. <laughs> they're rugged individualists yes, here in North that's America. Right. They, I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science. And the blinking of these fireflies is an example in the scientific field of sync. Sync. It's a field of study in which scientists try to make sense of examples of synchronicity that occur spontaneously in nature. I mean, no one organized those fireflies or set their little firefly lights to all blink at the same time. And what Steve Strogatz, who you just heard, wants to know there in his Office of Applied Mathematics at Cornell University is not only why these fireflies blink in unison, but what it says about open systems. Now, a closed system is one that has no contacts with the rest of the world, if you will. Like, what is that? Well, I mean, your computer, before you connect it to the Internet, that's kind of a closed system. But the universe is the largest open system there is. I mean, there is communication in the universe. You can say, oh, yeah, wait a minute. you got one star over here and another star a great distance away. But, you know, there's light connecting them together. There's gravity connecting them together. It's an open system. Right. But isn't there, Seth, also this relationship between open systems and order, or rather disorder? Right. We usually think of order as decreasing with time. I mean, 
Just look at your house. You leave it for a couple of weeks, and there's dust here and there, and books are on the floor, whatever. Or if you look at the buildings in the Roman Empire, right, they're not as well maintained today as they presumably were when the Romans were living in them. And that's because the order in systems decreases with time. Disorder increases. And scientists refer to that as entropy. But some things get more ordered over time, like those fireflies. I mean, what's the deal? You'd think they'd be doing their own firefly thing, but instead they're getting their act together. And that sounds like a decrease in entropy. Ants, fish, even the cells in human minds seem to do this. We'll hear about all of that later. But first, the field of sync. Steve Strogatz and those thousands of blinking fireflies. It's almost a religious experience in a way in that there's something uncanny about it. It gives you chills to see what we think of as not very intelligent creatures acting, you know, in harmony. How is it that they can do that? It's There's something amazing, especially from the point of view of science, say in thermodynamics, where we're taught that systems left to their own will just get more and more disordered because of the law of entropy. And, and of course, that that is a valid physical law for what are known as closed systems that don't have energy coming into them or, or passing out. But for open systems like the fireflies, that is, living systems like ecosystems that take in food and expel waste, I mean, the laws of thermodynamics, although they still apply, they apply in a more complicated way so that, in fact, it looks like systems can get more ordered over time rather than more disordered. It's something that we still don't really fully understand from a physics or math perspective, but that's the exciting thing, is to try to figure out mathematically how can a system, in a sense, climb uphill against entropy, which these fireflies do every night. But Steve, how do you know that this is happening? How do you know that they are in sync and that it's not a trick of the eye mm. or a coincidence? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. And and there was a, a time about 100 years ago when many scientists did actually believe that that was the explanation, that it was either a perceptual mistake on the part of the observer or some kind of optical illusion or aliasing. In the early 1900s, there was a very significant debate about this in the pages of Science Magazine. And some 20 letters to the editor were written on both sides of the debate. Some people saying it's absolutely a real phenomenon, although they, the people who said that couldn't explain how uh, it was happening. But those who denied it said, you know, it's impossible. How could the fireflies have a sense of rhythm as, you know, as profound as our own? And they're not trained musicians or anything like that. So, so your question was, how do we know that it's true? Well, of course, now with good video cameras, um, even nighttime video, we can see if you just watch in slow enough motion, you can see that the, the whole tree is dark. And then one frame later, boom, all the fireflies have gone off. I mean, they're synchronized to within something like, you know, a small fraction of a second, a 30th of a second. The other thing is that you can do experiments with fireflies that you've captured and brought back to a lab. For instance, there are experiments that have been done where researchers have tried to mimic the action of one firefly on another by using a pen flashlight as a surrogate firefly. And the finding is that if you flash your little pen flashlight at about the right intensity, that is, of a, of a firefly, and at about the right frequency, the um, firefly that's looking at the light will begin to synchronize with your little pen flashlight, even if you flash it at a slightly different frequency from what a normal firefly would do. That is, you can go, say, 10% faster than its normal rhythm, and, and that little firefly that's watching will synchronize, speeding itself up by 10% just to lock onto your rhythm. Then the question is why? Does that have something to do with their keeping time? Why do they do this? 
it, it certainly is something about time. As far as why they're doing it, that is something that's still controversial. There are literally, in the last review article I read about the phenomenon, there were 10 different theories about this. It, it clearly has something to do with reproduction because it's only the male fireflies that do this. I mean, an old thought was that this is a cooperative effect to attract the females. But that later got to be disputed by evolutionary biologists who said that's not really how evolution works. Creatures don't do things to be cooperative. The leading theory today is that there's no cooperation going on. It's that that females, if you show a female two different males that are flashing and one is slightly ahead of the other, that is just sort of flashes a few tenths of a second earlier, the female will orient herself towards the one that's in the lead and start crawling over and have sex with that one. So it's good to be first when it comes to male fireflies flashing. And so if every male is adapting to that, then you could, according to the researchers who did this work, that that predisposes the group to all be sort of going as fast as possible within their biological constraints and ending up in sync as a result of this fierce competition. Well, one of the things that you talk about in other researchers is that all of this cannot be explained yet. That's why this is emerging field, sync. And what you describe as nature's sort of eerie yearning for order. So is there some sort of universal law of synchronicity? We, we don't know. It's certainly a very pervasive phenomenon in nature. It, it's not something necessarily associated with consciousness, as the firefly example shows, because we don't think of them as conscious. But you don't even have to be alive to synchronize. That is something I find particularly spooky. That is, inanimate objects can synchronize. And examples, there is the observation from Christian Huygens in the 1600s. So Huygens, you know, is a famous physicist and had all sorts of discoveries. But one of his discoveries was that two pendulum clocks, he did experiments where he had two of them hanging from the same wooden beam and found that they would start to tick in perfect antiphase. That is, when one pendulum was swinging to the left, the other would be swinging to the right, almost like your hands would do if you move your hands apart and then clap them together and then move them apart and clap them together. That's the antiphase motion of your hands. The pendulums in the separate clocks were moving like that, and they stayed like that for as long as he observed them, even though the clocks themselves were not particularly accurate. He knew that. There was some kind of communication, if you want to call it that, going on between the clocks. And he wondered what it was. He separated them and found that they fell out of sync. And then he realized that there was some vibration being transmitted through the wood, that that they were feeling each other's shaking just enough through this wooden beam that that was enough coupling between them to keep them in sync. Well, I've seen you do experiments with metronomes, that if Mm -hmm. you set the metronomes apart, they will tick out of sync. But if you put them on a surface so that the surface connects the two, they will begin to tick. Yes. They will begin to tick in rhythm. And it is a spooky thing Do to you see. agree? <laughs> it's very spooky. Yeah, well, so that's a good example, the metronomes. The platform that they're both on, it, it's helpful if you put them both on a rolling platform, like, say, a board on top of two empty soda cans or something like that, so that if they're on, a, on an immobilized platform, like a strong, solid table, they might synchronize, but it would take much longer, and and generally they don't. So you need enough kind of communication, in this case, mechanical communication. I mean, when they each tick, they jiggle the board a little bit, and that jiggling is imparted to the other metronome in such a way that they end up in sync. Now, Now, you ask, how do we explain that? 
this is a case where it's purely classical mechanics. These are Isaac Newton's laws of motion, two metronomes on a rolling platform under the right conditions and with the right masses and so on, will actually spontaneously synchronize. But the, the thing that our minds find a bit puzzling is we don't see that implication easily. That is, going from the laws of motion to the consequence of synchrony requires quite a bit of skillful solving of differential equations. I mean, there's a lot of math in it. That's my point. Well, if the math can be explained in some of these cases, and I should say that there are many other cases that fall under this whole umbrella of synchronicity, satellite mm-hmm. orbits, schools of fish, also on the scale of the electron, which is also a scale that I don't completely understand. Well, if you're saying you can explain some of it with mathematics, then what is the big question in this field of sync, and what is it that unites it? Well, I, to, to me, the question is case by case, trying to understand. We shouldn't give the impression that, that sync is inevitable in every situation. It's not. I mean, so part of the, one of the big questions is, under what circumstances will a group of similar rhythmic individuals, okay, so think fireflies, oscillating atoms, crickets chirping, electrons in a superconductor, under what circumstances will a group of oscillating individuals spontaneously fall into lockstep. But it's interesting that you use the word inevitable in that it's not inevitable in all cases that organisms or objects will fall into sync. But you're saying something more than just it's possible. You're not just saying it's possible. You're saying that there is some some tendency maybe towards sync. Mm-hmm. And this suggests something bigger, that the universe is, I don't know, structured with a certain kind of order inherent to it. There, Well... That's, the, that's a tantalizing possibility. We see so much synchrony at every scale from the subatomic to the cosmic and using so many different modalities from mechanical communication to light to sound, pressure fluctuations. I mean, it does seem that I don't want to go so far as to say the laws of nature are somehow designed by some creator to have synchrony in them. I don't. That's a theological point that I don't want to really go near as a scientist. But... All I can say is that there is an uncanny amount of spontaneous order manifesting itself as collective oscillation. And so, you know, the laws of the universe don't have to be that way, but it seems that our universe is that way. And I don't really know quite what the question is. I mean, why is it that way? I I don't really know how to answer that. I just want to try to understand you know, what are the sort of prerequisites for this to happen or not happen? We 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 have learned some things. I mean, for instance, I keep using the word communication in this generalized sense, not of intelligent communication, but of one system being able to influence another to change its state. We need that. That is, the person sitting in their car with their blinker on is not in any way affecting the person in the car in front of them with their blinker on, whereas the fireflies really are influencing each other, that when one sees the blinking of another, its nervous system is affected and its flash organ is advanced or delayed in its rhythm. We'll hear more from Steve Strogatz later in the show. You know, this idea of sync is an interesting one when it comes to cosmology, Molly, because one of the most fundamentally profound observations about the universe is the fact that it looks the same in any direction, more or less. I mean, for example, you take a picture of distant galaxies from straight overhead, and you compare that with a photo of distant galaxies straight overhead for somebody in China, 
you know, the galaxies I'm looking at are maybe 12 billion light years away, and the ones they're looking at are 12 billion light years the other way, so they're separated by 24 billion light years, and yet the patterns are pretty much the same. It's as if you go to a party and everybody's wearing the same sort of clothes. They must have communicated with one another. They must have called up and said, this is the party dress code. So this is one of the most profound questions in cosmology. Why does the universe look the same everywhere? How could it have communicated all the information as to how to look? From the very big, the universe to the tiny. Coming up, the ants go marching two by two. And not much happens. But a thousand by a thousand, well, that's another story. A story of collective intelligence. Swarm in here? Or is it just me on Big Picture Science? This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. So, Seth, we've been listening to this idea of sync, you know, fireflies blinking in unison, metronomes clicking harmoniously, right? among other examples. And one explanation for synchronicity, at least some synchronicity, is collective intelligence. This is the idea that you have many individuals working as one and that that organization is part of their survival. You will be assimilated. Right. Kind of like the Borg on Star Trek. I mean... As far as I can tell, that's a whole bunch of species that seem to be directed and embodied in the mind of this single beautiful woman, who, by the way, is a Canadian actress, the Borg. It's, it's kind of like the mother of all book clubs, you know, just trying to get more members. And even in your individual computer, you may have what's called a multi-core processor, which just means that it's made up of smaller little units, each of which is not terribly smart, but working together, they can be faster than, than anything else you've ever had. And, you know, you also see this in animals, in non-human animals, that is, fish, bees, and what biologist Ian Cousins studies, ants. Each individual ant is remarkably simple, and yet the collective behavior is enormously complicated. Yeah. Well, there's it's, it's what's so interesting about that. I mean, you can talk about what those ants can do, and that's always impressive what a whole bunch of ants can do, <laughs> um, you know, unless they're trying to eat you, which is maybe not so impressive. But <laughs> To an observer, though, it would be. Yes, I suppose. But, I mean, you know, I look at it as a solution by nature. Nature has the species, the ants, and it turns out that after a couple of hundred million years of ants, they've evolved to this situation where each given ant is pretty stupid. Ants aren't terribly bright. But together, you know, they, they've pooled their stupid IQs to make one giant IQ for some things. And that's a really interesting solution because it's not what Homo sapiens is about. One of the remarkable things about collective intelligence is that we see it everywhere. I mean, even the cells communicating in our own body is a form of collective intelligence. 
each neuron in your brain has very limited understanding of what's going on, yet somehow billions of these interacting neurons allow us to you know, be conscious and to think and to love and to hate. Um, and when we look at the animal world, we have many sort of a, a rich series of examples of collective intelligence, some of the best known being the social insects, organisms like ants. Okay, you speak of ants, but is there something different between, say, collective intelligence and simply cooperative behavior? I mean, you know, wolves hunt together, so do hyenas and I think lots of other species, but is that collective behavior or is it that they're just helping one another out? I think one of the remarkable things about when, when you think about collective intelligence, if one looks at the ants as compared to, say, you know, looking at wolves or cooperating uh, lions or something like that, the ants are so much more sophisticated. I mean, certain species of ants will actually create traps for other insects. So they create this sort of network under which they hide and they wait for insects to cross this. And then they jump out and they grab it. You know, if you were to see chimpanzees doing this, you know, you think, oh, wow, that's remarkable. That's, you know, incredibly intelligent. That's up there with human intelligence. And yet these are ants doing it. So, so, but the individual ants are not particularly smart, right? I mean, how much neural capability does it require in order to engage in this kind of behavior? One of the things we find repeatedly is that, you know, if individuals don't need to be particularly intelligent, just simple local interactions with those around you can actually create remarkable complexity. Ants, for example, can find the closest of two food sources. How did they do that? No individual ant actually knows what distance is or which one is closer. But just by laying a chemical trail and then responding to the chemicals that other ants use, it means if you're going to the shortest resource, then you travel faster, which means you lay more chemical per, you know, per unit time, which means you recruit more ants, and eventually the whole colony, and it's really a colony-level decision, the whole colony chooses that shortest food source. So the colony has performed the computation. The colony has made a decision, even though no individual within the colony is aware of that decision. And some of the things we've discovered with animal groups, for example, fish schools and bird flocks and organisms like that, is that actually the motion of the animals in very simple interactions allows them to actually come to very accurate consensus decisions. You know, even though there's no signaling, there's no individual recognition, there's definitely no counting or mathematical abilities that are being deployed by these organisms, and yet collectively, as a group, they can come to a consensus when given different options and choose the majority decision. Clearly, collective behavior spans a wide range of species, Ian, from, from the Borg, which I assume are more advanced than we are, to ants, which seem to be less. But does it go even farther down the complexity level? I think that you mentioned that individual cells exhibit collective intelligence. That's right. I mean, obviously, our own brains is a classic example where each cell is not overly simplistic. You know, there's a lot of communication ability within an individual cell, and it's, you know, connecting to thousands of other cells within the brain, and then we have billions of cells. But still, you know, nevertheless, each individual cell is not aware of the whole decision being made. It's by working collectively that our cells in our brain are able to create what we call intelligence. And if you look elsewhere... Cell communication is a very important aspect. For example, one of the systems we're studying at the moment are tumors within your body. Are you talking about, for example, cancerous cells? Exactly, yes. Cancer cells have this sort of repertoire of abilities because, of course, they're sort of mutants of, of normal cell types. 
you know, normal cell types that could migrate, normal cell types that you know, created the structures in, in your body. And when these things go rogue, then they can almost access the sort of, I think of it as a Swiss army knife of tools that they can gain access to. They don't have to evolve them de novo. They're already there. And, you know, these, uh, if mutations occur within these cells and you get an accumulation of mutations, they can actually interact with each other and have remarkable collective abilities. Ian, how would this sort of collective intelligence at the cellular level have gotten started? How do you picture that? I can imagine that the first cells were all about, you know, me, me, me. There's this giant ocean of nutrients out there. I'm just going to get what I need. How would they have developed these mutual behaviors? Well, there are certain things that you can do as a group that are much more difficult to do on your own. For example, just through physical constraints, biophysical constraints, a cell can only grow to a certain size. I mean, you never, you never see cells the size of a man. It would just collapse and ooze all over the place. But by cooperating together or by interacting together, cells can then do things that together that individuals can't do. I mean, one example is a common activity in cells is climbing resource gradients. You have to find food. You have to sense the environment. And by acting as an array of sensors, you know, each individual is just a, a simple, local, noisy sensor. But together, by swarming together, you can actually process information about the environment. You can detect signals that would be undetectable and so on. And so there are these advantages in coming together that can then outweigh the costs you know, costs, for example, you have to share those resources when you find them. Um, and these are the types of principles that allow cells to come together and communicate and to, to eventually, you know, create whole organisms. What is the most intelligent hive mind then? Uh, what, what species would you name as the best example in terms of accomplishment, if you will? Well, I, I think it's particularly striking when the organisms themselves are, are remarkably simple. And so, you know, the blind army ants is a, is a striking example because each individual ant, when you isolate it, is as close to it. I always think of it as close to a robot as we get within the natural world. You know, remarkably simple stimulus response behaviors. If you look at a swarm of bees, each bee is actually pretty sophisticated. And so even though they have a collective intelligence, they also have individual intelligence. They have a, a combination, a sort of killer combination. So they're, you know, they're up there for sure. But I think, you know, it may sound a bit trite, but I'm, I'm just amazed at the human brain, you know, at this collective of cells that can communicate and can make decisions. And really, you know, us studying ants and studying these other systems is partly to allow us to begin to understand the evolution of intelligence that we see within our own brains. Ian Cousin, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Ian Cousin is a biologist at Princeton University. So if we take what he said about the collective intelligence of brain cells to create one human brain, what is the potential then of lots of human brains working together? There's this idea that if we could only all get along, if only we could cooperate a bit more as humans, we could do so much more. But, you know, Molly, I think that humans are actually wired to work together better in small groups, clans, tribal arrangements, maybe a basketball team. I don't know. But it seems to me that once you get more than maybe 5, 10, or 15 humans together, you better put them in uniform and give them marching orders if you expect them all to do the same thing. But some people are trying to change that. Thomas Malone is in the business school at MIT, and he thinks that solving some of society's big problems might just be possible if you can marshal large numbers of human brains. He's the director of MIT's Center for Collective Intelligence. Get that. There's actually a Center for Collective Intelligence. 
and he heads it. And one of the questions there is how you can connect people together through computers. You like that, Seth? I do. <laughs> so that they can work intelligently as a whole to solve big problems, such as climate change. Tom, the Center for Collective Intelligence, I have to say that that sounds like uh, some department in the agriculture ministry of the old Soviet Union. What, what is that? <laughs> Well, uh, it's not a department in the Agricultural Ministry of the Soviet Union. I suppose the word collective uh, is what steers you in that direction. But we're focused on how to take advantage of the new possibilities for organizing often very large numbers of people with new information technology. Well, you've been quoted as saying that this sort of uh, collective intelligence is one that's never existed on this planet before. Maybe you could explain what you mean by that. I define collective intelligence itself in a very general way as groups of individuals acting collectively in ways that seem intelligent. By that definition, collective intelligence has existed for at least as long as there have been people. Companies, countries, armies, families, those are all examples of groups of people working together in ways that at least sometimes seem intelligent. But in the last few years, we've seen examples of some very new kinds of collective intelligence enabled by the Internet. Well, maybe you could give me some examples. Well, think of Google, for instance, where millions of people all over the world are creating web pages, linking those web pages to each other. And then the Google technology harvests that knowledge, organizes it in such a way that when you type a question into the Google search bar, the answers you get often seem amazingly intelligent, at least in a certain sense of intelligence. And that is a kind of intelligence that's never existed on our planet before. But, I mean, wouldn't a traditional librarian have done something similar? I mean, they're familiar with their collections. You go in and you're, you know, you have to write a report on some subject, uh, the history of the Transcontinental Railroad, and, and, and they know where to direct you. I mean, in, in that sense, this sort of at least collation and organizing of information has existed before. Oh, in that sense, of course. That's like saying if we're talking about transportation, uh, well, we could walk from one place to another before, and what's new about jet planes or, or rocket ships? Uh, what's new is not the fact that you're transporting from one place to another. It's the speed, the scope, the way in which it's done. In this case, what's new is not that somehow you're getting some new information relevant to something you're, you're interested in. What's new is the amazing scope of information and not just written information, but in some sense human intelligence encoded in the ways the different sites are linked to each other. The way all of that information is processed and delivered to you really is, I think, a difference in kind, not just in degree. And, and what sort of problems could we address with this kind of collective intelligence? Well, one problem we're focusing a lot of our efforts on now in, in the Center for Collective Intelligence here at MIT is the problem of global climate change. If ever there was a problem that needs the best collective intelligence our species can muster, many people would say this would be it. And we're developing a system we call the Climate Collaboratorium in an attempt to harness the collective intelligence of thousands of people all over the world to come up with better plans 
for what we can do about global climate change. In particular, we're hoping to harness many people's intelligence, lots of people who aren't experts but may be quite intelligent, may have learned quite a bit on their own even if they're not credentialed experts. We're hoping to harness as much of that intelligence as possible. But at the same time, we're also hoping to harness some of the best intelligence of the world's most knowledgeable and most highly recognized experts in this area. Well, maybe you we could explain how this would work in practice. I mean, would, would, you, would they just all weigh in on the internet, you know, and just suggest things that they would want to see done to address the problem? I mean, how, how does it work in practice? Well, in practice, the specific thing that we're doing is developing plans, and these plans include a number of elements. One is uh, prediction or actions, uh, specifications of actions that we humans might take, for instance, reducing carbon emissions in different regions of the world by different amounts. Then we have computer simulation models that predict the consequences, the likely consequences of those actions in terms of things like temperature change or uh, sea level rise, etc. Now, how do the experts play in this? We're planning to have some contests where anyone who wants to can create plans and then we'll use the experts to evaluate which of those plans are actually feasible. Then, once we have a set of plans that the experts say are all feasible, then we're interested in letting anybody uh, involved in the community vote on or rate which of those feasible plans are most desirable. I know that MIT has a big robotics program. I've seen some of the stuff there in the museum they've got on campus. It seems to me that collective intelligence involving soft, squishy, three-pound brains, even though there are billions of them wandering the planet, might yield in this century to collective intelligence based on thinking machines. Can you see a future in which, well, collective intelligence is actually being applied to our, maybe our robot successors, or maybe us with implanted electronics in our brains? Well, we define collective intelligence as groups of individuals acting collectively in ways that seem intelligent. By that definition, collective intelligence could also include groups of individual computers just as much as it would include groups of individual humans. And as you say, it's, it's at least conceivable that someday this century or some other century, completely automated intelligence may in some sense replace the intelligence of our meat computers in our skulls today. But what we believe is that, certainly what I believe is that for the foreseeable future, the next few decades at least, we are much more likely to be successful by trying to figure out not how to automate everything that our human brains do, but how to best combine human and computational intelligence to get something that is more intelligent than either could be alone. Thomas Malone, thank you so much for connecting with us today and speaking with us. Thank you. My pleasure. I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Altogether now, that could be the motto of the Center for Collective Intelligence at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The director is Thomas Malone. Coming up, using swarm models to make better dinosaur movies, plus sorting out sync from hive mind, from chaos, from complexity on Big Picture Science. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. 
Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Swarm in here, or is it just me? And those swarms of insects, fish, birds are being used as models for the movies? Well, it is, it, and it has been. I mean, right from the beginning, if you're doing computer animation, one problem that recurs is that sometimes you have lots of things supposedly doing the same thing. When I say things, I mean living things. For example, uh, you have birds flying through the air, and birds, you know, like to flock together, at least those of a feather, right? And so how do you do that in computer animation? You could, you know, just laboriously model the behavior of each bird and make sure that it flocks with the others. And that's a lot of work, and it's much better if you can just think of a simple little mathematical algorithm, as so many of them are, uh, mathematical, that is. So the, the birds just have a simple rule, like always stay... 20 inches from the nearest bird to you. Because the birds in real life aren't thinking, hey, what's that guy two rows up and six rows over doing? Right. right? They're not thinking in terms of let's make a nice compact flock and all head for Florida together. Right. They have a very simple rule. All you do is pay attention to the next closest bird. I mean, but they're more sophisticated things. You've got a herd of woolly mammoths stampeding across the Arctic tundra, right, for some, you know, Discovery Channel show, whatever. Well, how many movies are there where we have a herd of charging woolly mammoths? Uh, Ice Age 3. <laughs> I don't know if there was a herd of woolly mammoths, but there were a lot of woolly mammoths in there. I'm Craig Reynolds. I'm a senior researcher for Sony Computer Entertainment. Craig, birds, minnows, other kinds of flocking animals. What is the behavior of these animals that we're trying to model? So there's a particular kind of motion that I think we all see in the natural world where a group of animals will move together, obviously um, orchestrating their motion somehow. And sometimes from the outside, we see very elaborate sorts of shapes and patterns emerge somehow from the actions of these individual animals. All right. Well, let's let's consider this. I mean, if you're doing a, I don't know, a computer animated film and you have to have a herd of Tyrannosauri or whatever. I guess they don't herd. They tend to operate individually, but some sort of dinosaurs and they've got to be, you know, stomping across a big plane or something like that. I mean, you have a computer model for each one of those animals. You can just program each one of them to sort of stay together, stay near the others. I mean, why not just do it that way? Yeah, you certainly can, and sometimes crowds or animal groups are animated just that way as a collection of independent animated puppets that don't have any connection with each other. But the approach that I I took in 1987 was to build a behavioral model where each of the agents would be capable, each of the characters would be capable of steering themselves around in a little virtual three-dimensional world and that they would have an analog of perception, that they would know where their flockmates were, they would know certain geometrical facts about the environment. And the program running, the same program running on each of the little critters' brain would then tell them how to move around in a coordinated fashion and avoid the obstacles and maybe get to a goal that they were seeking. So no flocking bird is an island. I mean, these birds, these computerized birds, they know about one another. What do they know? What do they try to do? What is, what is the algorithm? How do you get birds to flock, for example? The model uh, was called Boyd's. It was actually from uh, the uh, first film version of The Producers, where the concierge spoke about the dirty, stinking, lousy Boyd's. Um, <laughs> but the term came from uh, bird and oid, meaning like, you know, bird-like objects. The model had uh, three basic components to it. One was that the agents basically want to stay close to each other. 
that's the difference between a flock and just a bunch of birds out on the countryside. They stay close to each other. They move in the same direction. In fact, they have about the same velocity, where velocity means both speed and direction. And they also maintain some spacing between each other, the separation. So these three basic component drives of cohesion, alignment, and separation were the basis for the model. Well, that's a pretty simple set of rules. I mean, it sounds like these computer-animated birds just all head for Florida or whatever. They're all headed the same way. They're all flying more or less at the same speed. And they just pay attention to the, the bird nearest to them and try and keep more or less the same distance from them. I mean, that sounds like maybe the rules that the blue angels use when they're flying in formation. You know, just watch the guy on your right wingtip there and just keep a certain distance from him and everything will be hunky-dory and it'll look like you're uh, incredibly well coordinated as a team. Well, I won't argue with that. You know, the secret in science is discovering something really simple and taking credit for it. (laughs) The actions that pilots would use in close formation and the way humans walk in crowds and the way we drive cars on the freeway are all very similar phenomena, slightly different behavioral rules. But yeah, I I think that's very much alike. And in fact, the analogy with the um, precision jet pilot, I think, is very apt. Part of what led to me coming up with those three rules was making the perceptual shift from, say, standing on the ground and and watching a flock of birds swirl around above your head versus imagining what it's like to be one of the birds and what is apparent from their point of view and how they would think about moving uh, in response to those around you. Well, can you give me just a couple of examples that I might have seen in the movies or on television where this kind of technique has been used and I've been presumably impressed? Um, there was a very large cavalry charge in the movie, Disney movie Mulan, which was done by techniques very similar to this, developed by some other people at Disney. And more recently, these techniques have become very widespread. The uh, Lord of the Rings movies had uh, a lot of huge crowd scenes that were all created with simulated creatures, very similar to the Boyd's model. And in fact, these days, the techniques are so good, both the models of crowds and animal groups, as well as the portrayal of the characters, that it's almost not worth shooting real crowd scenes anymore. It's easier to simulate them. My goodness. Well, crowds are getting more expensive, but simulated crowds are getting less expensive. You can see where that's going. Well, finally, Craig, let me ask you this. Obvious applications for entertainment. Uh, What about for, well, controlling real crowds or or understanding how they're going to behave or, or, for that matter, the traffic on Highway 101? Yeah, so these sort of techniques are used to uh, simulate real environments or proposed environments such as highways or public buildings, public spaces, where uh, the engineers, the urban planners, the architects, the designers of the roadways need to understand what the construction will be like or the the facility will be like when it's finished and in use. And an important tool for testing that is to run simulations based on these kinds of multi-agent models to anticipate what the performance, say, of a subway station would be at peak rush hour when it's just full of crowds of people rushing in, in different directions. Well, Craig Reynolds, thank you so much for flocking with us today. It was my pleasure. Craig Reynolds is a senior researcher for Sony Computer Entertainment. So, Molly, we've heard about hive mind, collective intelligence, sync. But then there are all these other fields of studying group behavior and the organization of systems. Complexity theory, chaos theory. I mean, it's all so complex well, and right. chaotic. <laughs> okay, so what's the deal? I mean, all these fields devoted to how things work. One guy can keep them straight, at least. 
We return to Steve Strogatz, whom we heard earlier in the show. Molly also asked him. I also asked him, what is the difference between hive mind, chaos, complexity, and his field, sync? All right, so take it from the top of hive mind, chaos, complexity, and sync. Yeah. Yeah. Three of them have in common that they're all about large collections of individuals. So when we speak of sync, we're thinking of thousands of fireflies, hundreds of crickets, the emphasis here on words like hundred or thousand. We're thinking of many, many individuals that are doing something collectively very simple. In this case, just going up and down, flashing in unison, chirping in sync. They're all doing something rhythmic at the same time, at the same frequency. So what's simple about sync is that the behavior is purely periodic and repetitive. But what's not so simple is that it involves many, many individuals. There's an enormous group involved. So, so sync, I would say, is this, this sort of collective, unified behavior of something rhythmic in a, in a large population. Now, complexity has in common with that that it's also about large number of individuals, but they don't necessarily have to act in sync for the system to be complex. I mean, complexity is all around us. It, I mean, sync is just the simplest possible example of complexity, and that's why scientists like to study it first. But, but the complexity that you should have in mind when you hear someone speak of a complex system is, let's say, the immune response of your body to the common cold, where you've got millions of different antibodies and T cells, a very diverse set of cells trying to respond to an infection, or think of the stock market with, you know, there's 6,000 mutual funds, there's all different commodity traders. You know, it's, again, a large number of individuals, but in this case, doing something not nearly as simple as all getting in sync except in the days when there's a market crash and everyone is trying to sell at the same time. But, but except for that, <laughs> anything that involves enormous numbers of individuals obeying relatively simple rules but collectively doing something hard to understand, that's, that's complexity. Okay, now, so that's sync. We've covered sync. Um, right. Although, do you ever get the joke, everything but the kitchen sink? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> and also, my daughter pointed out that if you spell sync, S-Y-N-C, which is the usual way to spell it, you could pronounce it science, right? <laughs> S-Y-N-C. That, you read that as science. Yeah. <laughs> so we've covered sync, otherwise known as science in some circles, and complexity that leaves chaos and hive mind. Yeah, I would put them at the extreme opposite ends of the spectrum of what we do or don't understand. Chaos is sort of a done deal scientifically. We now understand it pretty well. Hive mind, I think, is right up there with complexity at the at the real cutting edge of what we are still trying to figure out. So chaos is the the seemingly random, unpredictable behavior of a system that has only a few variables in it and is otherwise governed by completely deterministic laws with no randomness or chance in them. So it has several elements. Looks unpredictable, totally deterministic. There's nothing random about the rules and only has a few variables. So like, you know, if you could imagine a, say, a dripping faucet. If you've got a leaky faucet, there's some kind of leaky faucets that just go drip, drip, drip periodically. That's the science of the 1700s, just a simple rhythm. But you can also have a leaky faucet that goes drip, 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 drip. You know, that is, it, it has a, a kind of irregular rhythm to it. That's not nearly as complicated as the immune system or the stock market, but it's still chaotic in the sense that it's unpredictable whether it's going to drip two times or three times or four times each time you hear it dripping. 
Okay, hive mind, last one. Hive mind is, is complexity plus intelligence. That is, complexity is the study of systems that have enormous numbers of parts, but those don't have to have any intelligence to them. You could speak of complexity in the atmosphere. For instance, the problem of global warming is a problem of complexity theory, whereas hive mind is complexity among individuals that actually have minds, possibly very simple minds in the case of termites or ants, but which as a group exhibit a kind of superior intelligence. Now, you're a mathematician, and you write in your book that all of this that we've been describing is the beauty of the world as seen through math. How do you describe that? What is the beauty of the world as seen through math? To me, the, the unity of these phenomena is, is the sort of thing that math can get at very nicely. That is, you wouldn't normally have a, a physicist studying electron flow, talking to a biologist working on ecosystems or you know, an astronomer studying the gaps in the asteroid belt. They would say that they have nothing to say to each other. But from the perspective of a mathematician, all three of them are working on the same phenomenon because they're all studying the same abstract issue of systems that either organize themselves or fall into synchronization. So at a, at a certain abstract enough level, that is, when you strip out the details of whether it's ants or particles in the asteroid belt, the governing equations, that is, the patterns, are the same. To me, this is a beautiful thing. I mean, not everyone would find it beautiful. You have to, like if you have a taste for minimalist music or painting, you might like it. If you like your painting or your music very rich and textured, you might say this is kind of dry. In math, we, we prize elegance, which is associated with explanatory power, as, as many things as we can explain all at once. Even if we have to leave out some of the richness of the world, that's what makes us happy. But Steve, do you find it beautiful on paper as a formula, the way that mathematicians do when everything adds up in that nice and tidy way, or when you see it demonstrated in nature? Hmm, I like them both. The beauty of the logic is compelling, but for me personally, as I say, there's a kind of uncanny or eerie feeling of something transcendent, that is, it's a quasi-religious feeling, when, when math is out there in the world, when math is explaining the patterns, or at least mirroring the patterns that we see in the universe, this goes beyond the beauty of logic. This is a feeling of, you know, I, I don't even know what words to use. It's a chilling feeling of something awesome. Thank you very much for talking with us. All right. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Steve Strogatz gets in sync working on applied mathematics at Cornell University and is the author of Sync, How Order Emerges from Chaos in the Universe, Nature, and Daily Life. We thank the swarm of intelligent brains that come together to help produce the program. As individuals, they belong to Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe requires some thought as to what sort of form that intelligence might take. You've been listening to Swarm in here, or is it just me? If you'd like to praise the ingenuity of the person who titles the shows, you'll find an email link on our website, radio.seti.org. If you just want to hear more programs, you'll find an archive there, too.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality, psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org.